Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauper, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to NucleCast. Of course, I am Adam Wilder, as always. And today we have with us a good friend and uh, one of what I think personally, he's one of the smartest and most thoughtful people in the space world. That, of course, is Chris Stone. And uh, Chris is a senior fellow at the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where he does the space work for NIDS. And Chris, you, uh, welcome, welcome to NucleCast. Thank you. Now you had a, an op-ed recently. It was a really interesting op-ed and it was provocative and I agreed with you. You made a compelling argument and I want you to walk us through, you know, the issue at hand and then the argument that you made. And then I think it opens up to a wider discussion. But I'll turn it over to you first. Sure. So um, a couple of weeks ago now, I, I, I published an editorial in Defense News um, regarding who will defend the commercial sector, if not the Space Force. And, and by Space Force, that, that includes U.S. Space Command, which we'll get to the differences between the two in a little bit. But um, the, the reason why I wrote that is because um, – the week prior or so, there was an article that came out, several actually, um, quoting uh, both Chief of Space Operations and the Commander of U.S. Space Command, two different people. One's in charge of the service, one's in charge of the combatant command. And the combatant commander, uh, General Dickinson, Army General, basically was quoted as saying that um, to the commercial space operators out there that – Essentially, uh, we don't have any orders to protect you from attacks that essentially you're, you're on your own. Now, I'm paraphrasing. That wasn't his exact words, but that's essentially what he was saying. And so I thought that was odd um, coming from him. And then there was a similar type of, of, of comment from General Saltzman, the, the chief of space operations. And so I thought it was odd that they would say that. And, I th- and the reason why is because even before Space Force was established and Space Command were established in 2019, there have been many hearings in Congress where commercial sector leaders, um, CEOs of companies, things of that sort, have testified. And they were asked, you know, do you think that this is a good idea to have a service for organizing and training and equipping space forces to address the threat of China and other uh, threats in space and having a combatant command to, to actually engage in, in, the, in the operations in space from a combatant command type of role. And pretty much all of them said, yeah, we, we need protection um, from threats just as much as the government vehicles do because – you know, as many of your listeners may be aware, you know, from the terrestrial support side, about 70, 80 percent of, of all communications, satellite communications is provided by the commercial sector to the military. 
um, and other as as the commercial sector widens their their capabilities uh, from launch and everything else that. Um, that the commercial sector is only becoming more important as a support function to the various services and, and agencies that, that conduct our national defense and our imagery intelligence. So hearing that from the command commander was a little weird. And and what he was saying by extension of that is essentially that my boss and my boss's boss, meaning the president and the secretary of defense, haven't given me that direction. And I thought that was strange. And so I did some homework and I looked into what's called the Unified Command Plan, which is the document that comes from the White House that gives the the marching orders, if you will, to each of the combatant commanders, um, Space Command being obviously one of them. And initially, when Space Command was created in 2019, their objective was to protect and defend, deter and things of that sort in the space environment. And the key area of responsibility for Space Command was 100 kilometers and up. That's That was a quote at the time. Well, looking at, apparently there's been a change to that in 2022 or so that changed it to where terrestrial support um, of, of combatants is primary mission and secondary mission is protect and defend and space priority and all that. Add to that the vice commander of Space Command basically saying that, you know, the same thing, our mission is primarily support and things of that sort. And so I wrote using a recent example from a naval example of where um, merchant vessels in the Sea of Oman were attacked by Iranian naval vessels um, and a U.S. destroyer responded to push them away and to keep the sea lanes open. And I use that as an analogy for what Space Force and the U.S. Space Command are supposed to be doing for space, um, that their primary mission, the reason why they have an area of responsibility in space is to focus on the space threat. And the supporting role, while important, really should be its secondary mission. And so that's kind of it in a nutshell. If you have any more questions, we can dig into it deeper. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Well, I, you know... I'm not going to lie. I think that's a perfectly reasonable argument to make because, uh, you know, you tell me if I'm wrong. I actually thought that, uh, you know, while I figured space and cyber would ultimately become their own services and have their own combatant commands, you know, which, you know, space has done both cyber, not necessarily yet, but you see, I would submit that you have to have a, you know, a kinetic ability to engage in warfare and to have exchange on the battlefield. Now, if your function is purely support, then you don't have that. Um, you know, the mm-hmm. Air Force didn't become the Air Force until it could bomb people. You know, when it was uh, when it was balloons and when it was, you know, observation 
it wasn't the Air Force. It was when it could affect the battlefield that it became the Air Force. And so for space, I would submit that when it can affect the battlefield, and the battlefield very well can be space. I mean, we know we have kinetic kill vehicles and we can laze and we can do all these things to damage and destroy satellites. But if if Space Command and Space Force are saying that's not what they're supposed to do, they're they're a support element, then to me it was somewhat a premature, you know, premature decision. But in reality, don't they really have the ability? It's it's really sort of a, a focus issue as opposed to a ability issue or capability issue? Well, it's so I guess to answer that question, I need to probably back up a little bit. So part of the reason why there is a space command um, and a space force is some inside Pentagon White House baseball that we can wait, get wait into. Wait a second. Are you saying politics affected the creation of the Space Force? It, well, Space Command. Um, <laughs> the, the Space Force was pretty bipartisan. Um, and just the, because of the way, because of Goldwater Nichols and the way our combatant command, star, our military structure is organized, that you have services that organize, train, and equip forces uh, sure. specific for their operating domain area. So air forces are air, Navy is sure. sea, Army is land, that kind of thing. So Space Force was supposed to be focused on getting after the, the threat uh, from China and Russia and others and that, that has become growing humongously. And as a result, um, you know, Space Force and Space Command came to be. The other reason why Space Force came to be from an organized training and equip standpoint is because they, the Congress did not believe that the Air Force was treating space seriously, and they were treating Air Force Space Command as strictly just a support arm of the Air Force, similar to how the Army treated the Air Arm as a support function of the Army. And a lot of Air Force people that you would talk to back then, even some today, still hold on to the belief that that's not the case, that we were not holding back, that the Air Force was not holding back the space folks. But in reality, um, you know, that they, it's just it's always been part of the mission and it's always been a supporting function. And that's how it always has been. You talk to a space power guy like myself or others in the service and they would say, no, the reason why we haven't been able to build kinetic capabilities in, in the numbers that are necessary or even the non-kinetic capabilities of the numbers that are necessary to, to address a threat in space, much less you know, defending terrestrial interests from space threats is because of uh, policy constraints um, from the White House and Congress and also um, just, just doctrinal um, opinions that have held sway over the last decade, I mean, or several decades. So if you look at what was going on in the 60s through the 80s, you had a, a, a buildup of potential space weapon system capabilities, and then those programs would get canceled with with changes in administration or changes in Congress leadership. And then after the Cold War ended, and I use air quotes, whenever the Cold War ended in the early 90s, um, because there was no real threat, the Russians didn't have the money, a lot of their, their special military capabilities for missile defense, interceptors, and anti-satellite weapons were pretty much unfunded, and they weren't able to, to keep their tanks rolling. It was seen by many people, including, I think there was a quote from General Richard Myers, who later became commander of the first incarnation of Space Command and later uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he said, we had space superiority by default. 
And so because of that attitude, they didn't think they needed to do anything other than providing some support stuff. And so that's why most of the the, the acquisition capabilities were more for longevity of systems and not for survivability. Um, they, they really didn't need a whole lot of electromagnetic jamming systems. They didn't need in their minds because there wasn't a, a big threat. It was all small powers that we were dealing with at the time. And so they thought, what's the big deal? So let's save some money. Now that's not the case. Since 07, you've been seeing that gradic, that that huge increase in capability from the Chinese with their what they call a multi-layered attack architecture and their system destruction concepts. And yet the current administration um, still has a policy called the Space Priorities Framework that I, you know, the Trump administration tried to get it going in the right direction, but they only had one term. And when the handover came, they developed this space priorities framework that viewed military space as an enable and support function again. And so we're back to where we were in the 90s and the so early what, 2000s. What What's the rationale behind uh, space as a support function without, you know, this desire to build it into a, you know, a kinetic enabler? particularly when your adversaries are doing it and, and you clearly know, I mean, you know, the Chinese, what well, was 2007 when the Chinese created a huge debris field in space and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they've done it, you know, the Russians have done it. I mean, we know they could do it, but why mm-hmm. do we say, Oh no, 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 we're not going to go that route. And we don't yeah. want to, what's the rationale? Well, the, the, the current policy rationale is that, you know, it's still sort of the take the high ground approach and work toward arms control and such as the, the kinetic anti-satellite testing ban that the, the State Department and DOD are pushing in UN and other forums. You've got the norms uh, push of responsible behavior in UN and other forums, and then you have um, just the viewpoint of the current policy that, you know, there really is no need to do the so-called space for space sake, which is one of my least favorite phrases because it always annoys me. Um, and that basically, you know, our terrestrial and our economic infrastructure, our force projection ability and everything is a force multiplier through space. And that's what space has been used as, and that's what it's good at. And therefore we should keep it there. You know, let's not rock the boat by provoking people into in other countries into building up more space weapons which as you said they're already doing and so but that's their that's their rationale is that if you serve as the model others will follow um and that you can hold them accountable through international pressure and uh and or the threat for from other domains such as or time place and domain of our choosing as they say which i also don't buy and i know the adversary doesn't buy (laughs) is that because there's no historical there's no historical precedent of the United States um, responding to jamming, lazing, or any of that stuff um, in kind or in other domains. We we have never we've been late. Like there's been NRO directors and others who have gone before Congress and said we've been lazed numerous times. You have General Thompson, the Vice Chief of Space Operations, saying frequently that we and I think it was a Space News article a few months ago. We are attacked daily from a reversible standpoint, from jamming and lazing and things of that sort. And you can even read this on the commercial sector is also having issues with this as the International Telecommunications Union publishes jamming reports. Some of them are accidental. Some of them are just, you know, 
you know, it's a bunch of frequency jamming issues just because people cross paths accidentally, but there are a lot of actual attacks going on. And so while the kinetic strikes piece hasn't necessarily uh, happened a whole lot, um, you know, there are other issues that we may have talked about before. And so it's not just to space and in space, but it's from space, like the the fraction orbital bombardment system that China demonstrated a year or so ago with a hypersonic glide vehicle on top. Um, the fact that those can can penetrate gaps in, in sensing capability and take out, you know, vital targets, ground radars, things of that sort is, is, is a big deal. And yet somehow we think just by trying to treat space as a sanctuary and as if as a, somehow it's a different different place than air, land, and sea has been in history uh, is is odd, but it is what it is where the policy rationale is coming from. So is it, uh, you know, I sort of wonder, you know, a, you know, you always reason by analogy. It's, you know, it's a common thing. So I sort of wonder, you know, back to the early days of the United States when we granted, because we didn't have the, the capability, so we granted letters of marquee and reprisal. So do we need a system of, you know, marquee and reprisal in space if, if you know, Space Command says we're not going to protect, you know, the commercial sector and we don't really do a good job of protecting our own. How about Congress granting the commercial sector letters of marquee and reprisal so that they can? Well, yeah. So the, I have two thoughts on that. The, the first part is, is I have argued that one way to help the Space Force and the DOD as a whole can, you know, focus their efforts and their limited resources on what's important is to uh, protect critical space infrastructure. And that's one good thing in the current Biden policy document that I referenced is that it mentions that space systems should be viewed as critical infrastructure, both from an economic and a military standpoint. But, you know, if you don't have the ability to protect it, you know, you, can, you can't really guarantee that support will happen. Um, on the other question to the marquee and reprisal, um, what's interesting is that a lot of the same folks who who published uh, the policy for this administration also worked in the Obama years. And I remember there was a lot of concern about private military companies um, being hired to protect, you know, whatever it is, either on land or sea. Um, and there's lots of lots of books written against it, reports from various think tanks against private military companies to be able to defend commercial assets, but they have to defend themselves against piracy or, or or Iranian Navy ships trying to, trying to seize or, or damage. And they're, they're like firing upon these vessels. And so um, I find it interesting that, you know, I'm all, I think that would be what you'd have to do if the military is not going to be resourced to handle it. Um, We had that situation back before our Navy became, big enough to do what it's doing, like you mentioned. So like back, um, there was an incident, uh, I think in the late 1800s, uh, after the Civil War, our Navy had downsized to the point where it couldn't do much. And it was called the the Virginius, I believe, was the ship. And it was a ship that was moving equipment and support as a privateer for Cuban rebels against the Spanish. Um, it wasn't an official U.S. vessel, but it flew under the U.S. flag. And the Spanish Navy decided they were going to intercept it, imprison guys, and start executing people. 
And because we didn't have the ability to respond, we didn't have the technology or the weapon systems capable, we relied on our friendship with the British Royal Navy to go in and take care of business. Well, you know, those folks didn't have their own defenses. And there might even be laws that people want to pass to prevent them from doing that. But, you know, because of the connection between our daily life and the commercial sector's items in space, whether it's broadband communications or the banking industry or transportation or energy, you know, everything would grind to a halt if a lot of the system destruction concepts and things the Chinese are preparing for actually happen. So I think it's an idea. I just I can't see the current people in the administration being supportive of that. And I, I can see a, a, a probably a feisty debate in Congress between the two sides on on that, too. But ideally, Space Force should be given its its resources and the Space Command should have its its priorities in order. And it's not support first, protect second. It's protect first. Otherwise, you won't have the equipment in orbit to support with and and then that goes back to you know this broader notion of you know deterrence you know it's it's sort of hard to deter if you have no capability you know it's capability times will and it seems like we're showing neither capability nor will which when you put that equal sign and the deterrence out to the side you know that that zero capability times zero will is going to equal zero deterrence uh, I think yeah, is right on that one. So yeah, well, if you look at the current folks working space policy in the DoD and the NSC for the Biden administration, you've got a lot of people who were recycled from the Obama years, and during the Obama years, their national security space strategy tried to redefine deterrence to include norms, alliances, um, things of that sort, and. Um, and then, of course, response was not respond in space, but from other things. And then you have now that kind of viewpoint playing out in the norms and the and the test ban and the arms control push. But at the same time, you also have uh, the White House. I'm assuming it's the White House pushing the Space Force to redefine space superiority to focus on supporting the Joint Force and not what space superiority has always meant which is the ability to, you know, um, protect all sectors, commercial, military, civil interests in space by force and the right. use of force. And that force can be non-kinetic, but it also, you need to have some sort of threat in the mind of the adversary and threatening them with, you know, a vote at the UN or a demarche is not exactly credible given the behavior of such activities from the Chinese. <laughs> And you have to be able to deny your adversary the use of that space, like sea control or air superiority. You know, you own it and you control it and they don't and they can't. That's sort of the the, the basis of it. So it's not just that we can, you know, we can communicate better than you can. That that <laughs> sort of doesn't really work. I mean, that's not superiority. Uh, right. You, well, I also wonder, like, if I'm a commercial, you know, space company and my government has said, we're not going to do anything for you, you're on your own. How does that impact what I'm willing to do, what I'm willing to spend money on? Um, you know, because uh, I can only imagine it would hamper 
what the commercial sector, what risk the commercial sector would take. Like, will I build the same sort of really nice capabilities uh, knowing that I'm going to get no support from my government if the Chinese or the Russians come after it? Will, will I build less, less capability, less, you know, in less investment, less technology? D does that hamper me or, or do I just build whatever I want to build anyways? And I don't worry about that. And I just take the risk. Yeah. Well, the, the thing to think about first off is that up until this point, the commercial sector has been very involved with the combatant commands and the services regarding space-related items and terrestrial support. They've been commercial folks are sitting on the floor at the commercial space ops or the uh, the the combined space ops center out in California. They've got uh, information sharing agreements to help them with with space flight safety and all that. And like I said, they also have contracts where they're providing services to the Department of Defense. So with all that, um, there's always been sort of this tacit understanding that if the if the crap hits the fan that, you know, we're going to have, you know, some sort of partnership to help defend things, whether it's through um, launch indemnification or, you know, policy coverage or whatever. But and we've been working that way toward, you know, helping figure out how we how we defend the commercial sector and all that, because there are other people who have argued that, well, commercial sector is not a military target. Well, if you read Chinese writings that are legit <laughs> writings, anything that's used for the military is a legit military target. Same with the Russians. So I don't know what is going on in the minds of, of the commercial sector after that quote. Um, some might just assume that it was taken out of context, but for those that have read the the unified command plan change, you know, it doesn't specifically spell out that. However, one thing that I've mentioned on a LinkedIn post was that in the military, whenever you're a commander, you're given specified tasks. And so the UCP has specified tasks, what things he's responsible for as a combatant command. But there is also something called implied tasks that you may not have in writing, but it's implied because of your specified tasks. And all of those together become your essential tasks as a command. And so to me, regardless of the fact that there's nothing in writing that says thou shalt protect commercial industries, space capabilities that you happen to be using and paying for, it's an implied task that is your job to defend and protect U.S. flagged space vehicles wherever they are, 100 kilometers and up, um, because that's your that's your area of responsibility. So why is it not your responsibility? If it's, I mean, imagine the the commander of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command um, saying to a commercial freighter going through the Straits of Malacca, "Sorry, um, if the Chinese start to try to hijack your vessel and open fire on you, you know that you're on your own." Um, you know, we'll, we'll send a nice note to them saying how bad they are, but, you know, and in the case of the one I used of the Iranian Strait of the, the, the Gulf of Oman, that was an Iranian Navy vessels opening fire on, they weren't, again, they weren't U.S. vessels, but they were allied vessels. There was a Bahamian, I think one, and then I forgot the other country, but either way, <laughs> that's what we're here for. Um. So, and then and the other question is that people have raised to me is like, well, you know, 
we can't be everywhere in space because space is big and we don't have enough stuff. Like, well, I know you made my point. We don't have enough things, but the Navy doesn't have thousands and thousands of ships either. The Navy is like 300 and some ships currently, and yet there are like hundreds of thousands of vessels traversing the world's oceans on a day-to-day basis. The point is a matter of presence and having enough capability spread out to render assistance when necessary. And the fact that we're still, you know, building our architectures, even with the multiple numerous satellite options, um, sort of in an old school way, um, it's not as it's not really as helpful. And so I would think that if you're a commercial guy wanting to invest in military capabilities, you just either bite your lip and take it and hope for good insurance coverage or try to look for other business. But for now, because it's such a lucrative market, I, I don't see them pulling out of the market. Yeah. So I'm going to pull out my genie. His name's Bob. And I'm going to rub my magic lamp. Poof. Bob is out. Bob gives you three wishes for the future of space. Now, what is number one? Uh, my first wish would be that the Space Force is um, able to posture appropriately, have the budget, resources, and personnel it needs to to project force, not just non-kinetic, but kinetic force, in from and to space. That's number one. Okay, good one. <laughs> number two. Number two, um, it would be my preference that... U.S. Space Command is restructured to fit its area of responsibility and all of its um, terrestrial focus components, such as an air, land, and sea component, would be deactivated. And rather, it would become a specified combatant command with Space Force providing the majority of the capability and its components, subcomponents focused on key regions of space that require special attention, such as low Earth orbit, geo medium Earth orbit where the GPS constellations are in cislunar. Okay. Number three. Number three, that we would develop um, space-to-ground weapon systems that would help us deal with the anti-axis area denial issues that the Air Force and Navy are focusing in the Pacific and other places because we are really short of airplanes and really short of ships. And so in a war of attrition, it would be better to come through areas that they have no defenses, and that's from orbit. That's really cool. Those are called rods from God. I, uh, and the Chinese have already demonstrated that they have the ability to do that, <laughs> uh, nuclear or conventional and yeah. hypersonic. All right, Chris Stone, that was the final word. All, All right. Thanks. thanks for joining us. That was that was a it was informative. You said a lot of things I didn't, I didn't know. So, I mean, I learned something. I'm confident the listeners will have learned something as well. So thanks for coming. No problem. Anytime. Thanks for having me. And thanks to you, the listeners for joining us. And we'll see you on the next episode of Nuclecast. I always enjoy Chris Stone's thinking because he's, he's a really good, clear thinker, especially about space. And I, you know, I, I find myself almost always in violent agreement with Chris and I, you know, I found myself there today and his arguments are pretty compelling as you think about space and 
who's going to defend it. And then if we, you know, if space command or the space force says, well, it's not ours because it's commercial. And then you compare that to, you know, what the Navy does. It's, it's a logical argument. And so I found myself, you know, sort of nodding and saying, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And so it's one of those things that hopefully you listeners will think your way through. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NuclearCast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.